Hey, welcome back. Last time we explored racial disparities and focused specifically on Black Americans. But Asians, Hispanics, Native Americans, and rural Americans, well, they all experience disparities too. There's some shocking evidence out there that in the emergency setting, pain medication administration varies by ethnicity. Hispanics and Asians were 21% and 31% less likely, respectively, than whites to receive a pain assessment from emergency medical services after undergoing trauma in an organ-based study. In this same study, both Asians and Hispanics were also over 20% less likely than whites to receive any pain medication at all pre-hospital. In a retrospective cohort study, Hispanics with fractures in the ER were twice as likely as whites to receive no pain medication during their stay. There are several investigations out there that report the underestimation and undertreatment of Hispanic patients' pain relative to white patients' pain. This holds true for fractures, cancer pain, labor pain, and postoperative pain. These studies represent false beliefs that Hispanics are somehow biologically less sensitive to pain than whites. So really, it's not surprising that Hispanic patients report being undermined by providers in a range of qualitative studies. Now, we know that Spanish language interpreters and materials are correlated with improved pain care. Unfortunately, one study looked at 185 Hispanic female patients who were hospitalized for OB-GYN care, and sadly, only 27% were given access to an interpreter. Different cultural values, expectations, and religions definitely add to these healthcare disparities. One study from Hong Kong showed that Asian patients requested 24% fewer PCA demand doses during the first 24 hours after upper abdominal surgery, which we all know is painful when compared with patients of European descent. Another study of Asians with uncontrolled cancer pain showed that despite most of them being in severe pain, only a third of them actually chose to use their prescribed opioids. In fact, most adopted non-pharmacological approaches and half used traditional Chinese medicine. So why might patients who are clearly in pain shy away from pain medication? A meta-analysis tells us that Asian patients with cancer pain actually harbored more negative pain beliefs than Western patients. So these are things like fears of drug tolerance, beliefs that cancer pain is inevitable, so treatment or no treatment, you know, it's just going to be there. A similar paradox happens with Hispanic patients. In comparison to white patients, Hispanic patients report that their pain needs to be significantly greater in terms of intensity before actually getting to a doctor. If looking at qualitative studies, then we learn that Hispanics are actually also more likely to report acceptance of pain as just a necessary part of what of life. They embrace stoicism with the intent of not burdening those around them. And they also accept the belief that pain medication should be reserved for when one can't perform their daily activities, their chores, their social tasks. There's also some pretty damning information regarding rural populations. There's a 2019 study that looked at 110 critical access hospitals nationwide. Only seven of those 110 hospitals offered interventional pain procedures. On top of that, only 26.5% of those clinicians were actually pain medicine physicians. A study evaluating interventions for chronic pain found that rural patients were less likely to use self-management interventions, things like mind and body therapies, than non-rural patients. 
Furthermore, opioids were consumed by 76% of the rural patients compared to 52% of the non-rural patients. You're listening to the Pain Matters Podcast, presented by the American Academy of Pain Medicine, the nation's leading podcast for healthcare providers focused on providing the best care today, tomorrow, and beyond. Each episode, we'll share the latest innovations and practical applications that directly impact how we care for patients and measure success in multidisciplinary care. Let's get started. With all these disparities, it's more important than ever that patients can advocate for themselves and that providers can advocate for their patients. It's a skill though, advocacy, and I really feel we don't discuss it enough. Today, we're here with Dr. Stephanie Vanderpool. Dr. Vanderpool is the Director of Comprehensive Pain Services at the University of Tennessee Medical Center in Knoxville, Tennessee. Apart from her clinical work in interventional pain medicine, Her professional passion is in pain medicine awareness and advocacy. Being an advocate for our patients is intrinsic to our duty as physicians. Many of our patients who deal with chronic pain admit that they feel dismissed when expressing their struggles with pain. To add to that, we know that medical gaslighting or the downplaying of symptoms by providers is an issue. The New York Times has an article highlighting this, and actually Merriam-Webster made gaslighting the word of the year in 2022. The article is not wrong. Medical gaslighting is definitely real. It tends to impact minorities and women more frequently, and there are things that we do all the time as physicians that uh, can contribute to it, such as interrupting patients. However, the article also says something pretty questionable. It says that a sign of gaslighting is not ordering key imaging or lab work to rule out or confirm a diagnosis. This statement assumes that patients pretty much always know which tests are essential. In practice, sometimes less is more in terms of tests and patient care is extremely individualized. There are so many factors that impact what the right decision is for any individual patient. So how do we balance this fine line between allowing patients autonomy and still practicing evidence-based medicine? The first thing you wanna do is engage with the patient. You want the patient, you have to meet the patient where they are. They've got, they're coming in with so many things distracting them and you've got to make a connection with that patient in such a way that Um, they know that you're listening and they're listening to what you have to say. But secondly, and most importantly, honestly, in my opinion, is to empathize with the patient. That's that getting to understand the patient's perspective and where they're coming from until the patient knows that you care about how this is affecting them. They really don't care what you have to say. Only then, after you've engaged and empathized with the patient, can you go on to explain what it is that you want to do, why you want to or don't want to order a particular test. If you try to go in and explain right off the bat, the patient is going to obviously feel like they've not been heard, they've not been understood, they've not been listened to, and they're not going to want to listen to what you have to say, even though your explanations may be perfectly evidence-based. And then finally, and also very importantly, you you want to empower the patient to be able to do to make a decision um, based on the information that you've given them on what pathway they want to take. For example, if a patient is coming in to see me and they have back pain that's radiating down the back of the leg, um, they may come in demanding an MRI. But we may know that the pain has only been present for two or so weeks and the patient hasn't tried physical therapy. If I go into that patient and say, you have to have physical therapy right away, I'm not ordering an MRI, that patient feels dismissed, they may even feel gaslit. But if I explain to them, 
listen, I understand this pain is bothering you a lot. I know it's affecting your quality of life and your ability to do things. Let's try some physical therapy because evidence shows that physical therapy early on with the onset of this type of pain can be very effective in both reducing the pain and improving your overall function. If that pain does, if that pain does not resolve or improve significantly with appropriate trial of physical therapy, we'll absolutely order an MRI to see what else is going on and what we can do to treat it. And that order, that empathizing and then explaining and then empowering the patient to make the decision, which physical therapy place would you like to go to? Does this make sense? Am I? Are there any questions you have about the plan that I haven't answered so that they feel empowered really affects patient buy-in in a way that is so positive? Yeah, what I hear you saying here is don't be prescriptive. So yeah. allow the patient to really tell you what they feel and try to feel what they feel, you know, to the best of your capability. There is that difference, obviously, between empathy and sympathy. And in some cases, you know, um, if a patient has full-blown CRPS of bilateral upper and lower extremities, maybe you'll never get to true empathy, right? But you can at least get to sympathy. And I think expressing that before moving forward allows you to not be prescriptive and really give that patient autonomy, beneficence, and all those things that you want to do in medical ethics. A few years ago, a colleague of mine gave me a mug as a gag gift, and it said, your Google search does not equal my MD. And yeah, of course, it was meant to be a joke, and it was kind of funny. But at the same time, it did highlight some more serious issues in healthcare that are relevant to advocacy. Obviously, we want patients to know their options in terms of treatment. So let's say there's a patient who has painful diabetic neuropathy, but lives in a rural area without pain-trained physicians. Maybe a Google search really is the way for that patient to find out about a cutenza patch or a spinal cord stimulator. Patients need information to advocate for themselves, but at the same time, most of our patients are not trained to interpret complex medical information, and obviously Google is not peer-reviewed, and even the articles that are peer-reviewed that Google leads you to may not be very accurate. We want to protect our patients from this misinformation or disinformation. So how can we balance autonomy and beneficence? Hmm, that is an excellent question. So we always want patients to feel as though they can advocate for themselves or that they can advocate for their loved ones if they're not the ones suffering with pain. And sometimes if you don't have access to clinicians, as you mentioned, who may be specialty trained, the best next source is actually Google or some of the internet search. But when you come up with these questions, you want to come to your clinician, ask them about them and, and ask what their impression is or if they can point you to a credible source to be able to find out more about that particular treatment options. Um, I often teach about um, the ABCDs of pain advocacy. And so the A is just what we talked about, asking questions, finding out what's causing my pain, what are the treatment options for it. And if you as a clinician don't necessarily fully understand or have a familiarity with these treatment options, such as spinal cord stimulation for diabetic peripheral neuropathy, is there some place you'd recommend I go that's a credible source that I can find out more and see if I might be a fit? Then B, that's going to be your being optimistic and being open, because sometimes we'll have um, recommendations for patients or patients will have recommendations that they want to ask our clinicians about. And if either party is closed minded, there's a lack of communication that occurs where we're not able to have that breakthrough that we need. Then the C is going to be to clarify the plan, whether it's you as a patient or whether you're the loved one of a patient, going ahead and clarifying, well, what's the next step? How do I either find out more about this treatment option or what is the next step for me to potentially have access to this treatment option? Do I need a referral to someplace else or is there someplace I can go to learn more? 
And then finally do D or doing your part. That's getting to the bottom line of what are the activities that I need to take to continue to advocate for myself? Do I need to go to this physical therapy appointment? Do I need to go to this additional specialist so that I can advocate for myself in a way that's positive and it's going to get positive outcomes? That's great. I love the acronym because acronyms are just easy and digestible. And it is a really good way for patients to think through this because we don't want them to get really attached to ideas that maybe aren't accurate, but we still want them to come in and ask the right questions and hopefully be directed to good information and good resources. Yeah, I think you mentioned a lot of great things so far, and there's just so much that goes into trying to be the best advocate for your patients. So how can we avoid burnout as physicians, especially in a system where there isn't compensation for this extra work? You know, it's interesting that you asked that question because the one of the most important things that has um, helped me in, uh, avoid burnout has been making sure that I fill my cup. And what I mean by that is getting adequate sleep, exercising. I did a workout before we recorded this podcast because I knew I needed to get that in. Um, taking time for relationships that matter um, and taking time to uh, make sure that you are in a good place because you cannot do this work. This work is draining. Fighting prior authorizations with insurance companies is draining. Fighting denials with insurance companies is draining. And if you are starting from a place of emptiness because you have drained yourself to the max, you're going to burn out so much faster. So while that may not be the uh, most scientific explanation, I will tell you that in my personal life, real world example, that is what has helped me avoid being burned out on a regular basis because this work is hard. Yeah. I mean, and I always think, you know, um, it's hard for us certainly, but I can't even imagine for primary care doctors who are seeing so many patients in a day with so many medical problems that they're managing and they have maybe 15 minutes to see that patient and manage all of these medical problems. And in that vein, I want to shift gears a little bit right here because Stephanie, your career has revolved around what you call a paradigm shift in pain treatment. And what you're doing has the capacity to really impact more than pain physicians. It can impact primary care physicians. It can impact all of these people who are really out there on the front line. So let's talk about your targeted pain treatment program. Who does it target? And how is your approach different from the traditional ways in which we practice pain medicine, especially how primary care doctors might right now practice pain medicine? Well, I'm so glad you asked that question because targeted pain treatment is something that I've honestly developed over the course of my career. Started off in fellowship with components. And as I've continued to practice, I have added on additional components with the sole purpose of making sure that um, treating pain is, is done in a way that is evidence-based, but also digestible for clinicians who are so busy, as you mentioned, with so many other competing interests but also effective for our patients. So targeted pain treatment is a process of accurately diagnosing the cause of pain and targeting to the treatment to the cause. Sounds simple, right? It's what we all should be doing. The problem is we know that when we look at the details, especially looking at the opioid crisis, we know that that has not been the case historically. We know that pain has traditionally been treated as a number that needs to be reduced. And that's where the opioid crisis really came into play because opioids were prescribed because they could effectively reduce a pain score. The problem is that they didn't treat the underlying cause of pain, therefore pain progressed. So with targeted pain treatment, there are four core principles. The first is accurate diagnosis. So figuring out exactly 
what is causing the pain that the patient is experiencing, recognizing that there are multiple causes of pain that can be present at the same time in the same patient. The second is targeting the treatment. So once you've identified the diagnosis, we target the treatment, whether it is medications, interventions, physical therapy, psychosocial treatments, to the identified cause. The third component of targeted pain treatment, which I think is something that other pain management doesn't necessarily focus on all the time, although it's becoming much more prominent, is a focus on function. Like literally when patients come in to see us, we're identifying what is limiting your function the most and how can we help you optimize your function? And finally, is that education and empowerment part we just discussed. So we're educating the patients so they have an understanding of why they're hurting and we're empowering them to take part in treating their underlying cause of pain. When we package that all together, we're able to equip not just patients, but clinicians of all specialties, not just pain specialists, but primary care, um, uh, surgeons, everybody else has their certain tools that we can give everyone to be able to practice this type of pain management and either recognize when a patient may benefit from a referral to a specialist or whether there are some treatments that are accessible to all clinicians, such as different types of medications or different types of physical therapy recommendations that they can initiate well at the onset of pain so that the patient doesn't have to suffer for months until they can see a pain specialist. So that's really kind of the way that we we use targeted pain treatment as an outreach and educational tool to really increase access to appropriate pain care to our patients. Do you have uh, several webinars on YouTube and everyone can go and check out those webinars on the targeted pain treatment channel. Um, you also have a conference coming up later in March uh, in this regard. Specifically, one of the webinars, though, um, you mentioned patient testimonials and how it may be leading to a documentary. Can you tell us a little bit more about this? Yeah, so that's something we're really excited about. We're actually in post-production of a full-length documentary right now that was honestly funded by a a generous patient donation, a patient who um, was very grateful for the results that they had received through the clinic and made a generous donation to uh, the medical center, which we've then been able to purpose into really focusing on a new avenue to really educate patients or educate clinicians and patients, anyone who watches it. Um, The documentary follows five patients who have had life-changing results through targeted pain treatment. And it's really the process of, like we mentioned, that focus on function, accurate diagnosis, targeted treatment, and education empowerment. And it tells the story in a way that interweaves both their clinical picture with some education about what targeted pain treatment is, with the goal that we can honestly provide hope for patients who are living with pain. Because so many patients have lost hope. They've suffered. They've not gotten the answers they've wanted. And so by hopefully watching this documentary, which um, we hope to release uh, later this year, um, it'll not only give them information, but options and and hope for um, ways that they can address the pain that they're dealing with. First of all, I think that's super cool that you created a documentary. So kudos. That's awesome. I can't wait to see it. But second, I think it's nice to have an example of what to do, because we have lots of examples in the media about what not to do and how pain medicine and pain treatment is so scary, right? So I think Mm -hmm. it will be very uplifting for patients and even some of these providers who don't necessarily have pain training to watch this and realize that there are ways to treat pain that can be really effective and to sort of um, show with color, you know, the stuff that you're teaching in your, your targeted pain treatment program. So that is awesome. Um, yeah. And, you know, you live in Tennessee, you practice in Tennessee and Tennessee is one state that was hit hard by the opioid crisis. 
And I know that you practice at an academic center in Knoxville, which is a tertiary care center, meaning you're likely seeing lots of folks from rural areas. What are the biggest challenges within pain management for rural populations and how can we begin to address these? Well, interestingly, um, and it's very important to note that the challenges of the opioid crisis are not limited to rural populations. Uh, Knoxville, Tennessee is not considered a rural, uh, rural city. However, there are surrounding areas that are. And the biggest challenge is honestly access to appropriate pain care. And by that, I don't necessarily mean pain management specialists, but access to the clinicians who have the knowledge that um, can help them uh, provide whether it's targeted pain treatment or evidence-based pain treatment. And it's not for lack of wanting to have the knowledge. It's not for, um, it's not for lack of skill. It is, we, you know, uh, Shravani, because you do that course at Johns Hopkins. We just don't get training on how to assess and treat pain in medical school. And so if you're not focused on learning the techniques on how to appropriately assess and treat pain, um, it's going to be easy for um, you to either do what you're familiar with, which may or may not be prescribing the opioid, or to potentially say, listen, I'm so sorry, there's nothing I can offer you. And then these patients are suffering and have to um, go somewhere else, which is one of the reasons why we do the educational outreach we do. Uh, Mustafa, you mentioned the targeted pain treatment conference that we do, which is now in our fifth year. And it's actually a conference geared towards primary care clinicians. We're hosting it this year in Knoxville um, on March 31st at the Hilton Airport Hotel. And the goal of it is really, the theme is awareness, access, and application. And the goal is really to provide tools and skills to um, those who attend the conference so that they can go back and treat their patient populations, identify the cause of pain, make recommendations, and potentially refer if needed so the patients can get the relief they need. We also have created a TPT toolkit, a targeted pain treatment toolkit that you can get to at tpt-toolkit.com, which actually is a compilation of um, tools, techniques, resources that you can use and implement in your practice. It's completely free. You just go to that website and you can download it and see if those may provide you some resources um, uh, and techniques that you can apply today in your clinical practice um, to help you better uh, be more equipped to treat patients who are dealing with pain. Tell us a little bit about state opioid abatement funds. So the opioid abatement funds actually came from many multi-million dollar settlements with pharmaceutical companies related to the opioid crisis. Within the state of Tennessee, I'm one of 15 members on the Tennessee Opioid Abatement Council, which were appointed by different government officials. And so our opioid abatement council right now has over $104 million in the trust fund to be distributed for projects and programs to abate the effect of the opioid crisis. What that means is there's a portion of those funds that are distributed um, statutorily to the um, counties, but then 65% of that funding is actually gonna be distributed to grantees. So folks who are going to apply to the Opioid Abatement Council for funding for programs that are approved according to uh, an abatement list that has been published and accepted by the council. All of this work I'm talking about is sunshine. You can go to Tennessee Opioid Abatement Council website and look it up. But the beauty of this is that we have a real opportunity to make an impact on patients whose lives have been affected by the opioid crisis. Whether it is um, patients who are dealing with opioid addiction, uh, communities that have been ravaged by the opioid crisis and housing challenges, but also very importantly, prevention. So things like transitional pain services, which we're establishing at UT Medical Center, where we can 
identify patients who may potentially be at high risk for prolonged pain or increased pain after surgery, and then um, make a multimodal treatment plan that not only addresses the cause of their pain, but also proactively um, addresses their potential for opioid escalation postoperatively so that those patients have better outcomes, number one, and less chance of opioid addiction. All of these things are components that these opioid abatement funds can fund, and we're so excited to be able to start offering them to the community to help the people of Tennessee who have been so negatively affected by this opioid crisis. I'm glad we're talking about this because this is not limited to the state of Tennessee. Uh, With AAPM, I was just on a call with the state of South Carolina where there's lots of funding available as well. And there's funding all over the country. So we hope that everyone takes advantage of that and sees what's available in their state to make a difference because this is a lot of money and it's a good time to be a pain doctor if you wanna make a difference because the money is out there. Yes, I would agree. Primary care doctors are really in the trenches and on the front lines of the opioid crisis, especially in these rural areas. What unique things are happening to make sure that these clinicians have the information and tools that they need to effectively and safely treat patients with chronic pain? So unique things that are happening, uh, at least in the state of Tennessee, we have several options and resources for patients. We have the Targeted Pain Treatment Toolkit that I mentioned previously, which is a compilation of these resources that um, clinicians can download for free that give them not just tools and tricks to practice targeted pain treatment, but documented resources that are uh, readily available, such as the Tennessee Chronic Pain Guidelines, the Department of Health and Human Services recommendations on best practices for pain management, um, and different resources that actually um, uh, address some of the challenges with uh, getting the education and pain management that they need. There are also multiple free CME opportunities available or paid CME opportunities available. For example, in the state of Tennessee, we have to do two hours of continuing education for um, pain management or for opioid prescribing in particular. And organizations such as the State Volunteer Mutual Indemnity Company, SVMIC, or other organizations actually have recorded programs available online where clinicians don't have to travel to another location. They can get some of that education at their home. And then finally, if they want to come to Knoxville, they can come to the Targeted Pain Treatment Conference on March 31st, which we'd love to have them. And we'd love to uh, make those connections where we can provide some of the tools and education um, that will help. Uh, they can take back to their population, their patient panels, and provide um, some care that maybe their patients were not able to get previously. So far, we've talked about education for patients, for providers. We've also talked about access issues. You've actually done some work in the British Virgin Islands, where not only is there issues with education and access, like we talked about, but of course, cultural differences. How do these cultural barriers and differences actually go on to influence disparities? So it's interesting you ask that question because when I think about when I practice pain management in the British Virgin Islands, I'm actually remarkably proud of the resilience of the people of the BVI. And what I mean by that is they can have severe findings on an MRI and they just keep going to work. They keep walking. They keep literally walking at five o'clock in the morning for exercise um, and doing what they need to do doesn't mean they're not hurting. It's just that's a cultural difference. They're not complaining necessarily, but when they do have an op- and and also they haven't had an opportunity to get their pain addressed by a specialist until I started going down there back in 2021. So that's one of the cultural differences is honestly how pain is perceived within the community. 
Is it perceived as something that you just have to get over and work with? Or is it perceived as something that can really sit you down? Um, but the other thing in the African-American community um, in the United States that I've observed is that there's almost a component of pride that is a, a challenge that we don't want to necessarily come to our clinicians and, and complain about pain because we don't want to be seen as less than or weak. And you may see that in other, other cultures also. You measured, mentioned other cultures in the introduction that may experience that same type of um, that same type of feeling of not wanting to complain. But that said, that that same not wanting to complain actually affects disparities in pain care because those patients are less likely to get referred to the specialist that can actually provide the life-changing treatment options that can give them their functional quality of life back. So we have a responsibility on both ends. As patients, we have a responsibility to speak up when we have challenges or pain that's affecting our function. And as clinicians, we have a responsibility to ask our patients about pain that's affecting their function. One of the things that we recently published was the Tennessee Functional Status Questionnaire. And that actually was geared towards assessing not just patients' physical activity level, which is correlated to metabolic equivalence, but also whether or not they have pain that affects their function, whether or not they have um, had recent hospitalization or um, a decrease in activity over time. Not only were we able to correlate the uh, questionnaire to metabolic equivalence in a uh, statistically significant fashion, but we were able to identify that when patients complained about a decrease in function over time limited by pain, that was a red flag indicator that there was something else going on that we needed to address. So in cases where there are cultural differences, where patients may not voluntarily come to you and say, hey, doc, I've got this pain, you can use a tool such as a TFSQ to kind of objectively identify, is there something going on with this patient that I then need to ask them about? So that's an option. I love that. I mean, I wonder if putting an Apple watch on those patients or an aura ring or something like that would help deal with this issue, right? Because now you can just sort of objectify function and sort of take out that cultural barrier altogether of not wanting to talk about it, not wanting to complain about it. It's interesting, not wanting to talk about things and not wanting to complain about things in some ways can be protective, right? Because you mm -hmm. have placebo and nocebo and it might actually help protect patients against nocebo effects to some degree, right? But then at the same time, it can be harmful because they're not asking for the care that they need and then they're not getting the care that they need. So it's sort of a double-edged sword and I do believe that it's impacting um, these disparities. So for any of us who have ever experienced being a patient, we know that being your own advocate is very stressful, especially in a broken healthcare system, right? And if it's stressful for people who are in medicine, who actually know how to navigate the system, then I just can't imagine how stressful it is for those who really don't know how to navigate this crazy and complex system. And this is especially true for those who are the subjects of healthcare disparities. So this is an incredibly important topic, and we are really grateful that we had you here, Dr. Vanterpool. Thank you so much, Dr. Vanterpool, for talking to us about this essential topic. Thanks to Dr. Derbakala for producing and co-hosting with me, and thanks to the AAPM for this podcast. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Pain Matters Podcast. If there's anything we mentioned in today's show you missed, don't worry. We take the notes for you at painmed.org slash podcast. If you're not already a subscriber, please consider pressing the subscribe button on your podcast player so you never miss a future episode. And don't forget to leave us a rating and review to help us reach and educate even more of our peers in pain medicine.